Just on? All right, we're good. Cool. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer here as we begin our time together. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to think together about those who have come before us and how they have um, encountered and uh, embraced and immersed themselves in your word and then passed that along to others. Would you give us grace by your Holy Spirit to think well about Thomas Cramner and his approach to scripture and also the Lord's Supper uh, in such a way that we might be um, encouraged and um, spurred on to greater understanding and greater um, engagement with you and, and your revelation towards us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a hand out there in the in the middle aisle. The only aisle? I guess we have two aisles on this side. Sure. So um, as you know, we're, we're, we're kind of working our way through this book here, All That Lights Combined, which is uh, uh, an anthology of, of, uh, or, uh, anthology of essays on um, various figures in the Anglican theological tradition and their approach to scripture, especially in what we're calling this figural reading of scripture in the Anglican tradition. And we've had uh, Dr. Patrick Egan sharing with us the last couple of weeks. And last week he um, focused in on William Tyndale, who I guess you might say was sort of a proto-reformer, or maybe a reformer, but a you know, pre-official English Reformation reformer from England himself. And today we're moving on to think about Thomas Cranmer, uh, who was the first, I might say the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishops of Canterbury have been going on since uh, Anselm the, uh, uh, of Canterbury was sent from, uh, from Rome to be a missionary. And uh, I, I don't know what the number they are right now, but the current Archbishop of Canterbury counts himself as like the 300th or whatever it is, 200th uh, Archbishop since the first Archbishop of Canterbury. But, but Cranmer was the, was, was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Reformation. Got his dates on there as, uh, as on this handout here. So 1489 was when he was born, uh, coming in at the end of the 15th century. And then he was died. He was uh, executed, called a martyrdom in 1556. And he was Archbishop of Canterbury from 1533 to 1555. Now this is a this is a tumultuous time in England's history. It's a tumultuous time in in Europe's history as uh, there are these revolutionary new ways of engaging with Christianity that was definitely different than what had been going on in uh, England and in Europe for the first for the previous couple hundred years. And um, uh, and a lot of this turmoil was focused in on how do we read scripture, how do we understand scripture, how do we apply scripture to our to our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church, how do we apply scripture to our, our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation, how it is that we are saved. And then uh, even maybe more pointedly in England, how do we apply scripture to our, our, our sacramentology, or especially our, our doctrine of the Eucharist. And uh, oftentimes, if you've done any church history, you remember that um, on the continent, folks like Martin Luther, they were debating um, the Roman Catholics largely on the issue of justification. That is, how are we saved? Are we saved through faith alone, by Christ alone, um, as Luther wanted to say, or is there some sort of mixture of a participation in the church, participating in the, in the Roman Catholic church infrastructure? that is part of our salvation, such that you need to be baptized, you must receive the Lord's Supper, you must submit fidelity to the papacy and this whole, again, Roman Catholic infrastructure in order to be saved, or is it more simply on, on faith alone? That was the main issue really animating things on the continent. Uh, and in England, that was an important issue as well, but actually it was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that was, I think, the most controversial, and this is the doctrine then that end up, ends up getting Cramner killed. So this is a little foreshadowing to the last page here where we have this little uh, wood engraving of his execution. And when he was arrested um, in 1550, 
55, it must have been 55, that's when he was ending, ended as Archbishop of Canterbury, um, it was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that was most pressing on the charges of heresy. So, uh, you know, a few more dates here. Um, uh, Henry VIII was the king from 1509 to 1547. And he was the one who appointed Cranmer as archbishop in 1533. Now, at that time, England was still Roman Catholic, just like everyone else in, well, mostly just like everyone else in, uh, in, in Europe. This was just a few years after, a decade or so after Martin Luther had begun, so to speak, the Reformation uh, by his uh, work in, in Germany. But it was a bit, a bit late in coming over to England. It took a few years, a decade or so or more, to get over into England. And by the time our, uh, Cranmer was appointed archbishop, they were still wholly within the Roman Catholic fold. So when he became archbishop, he was authorized by, the, by the, the Bishop of Rome, by the Pope, just like any other bishop in any other part of the Roman Catholic infrastructure would have been um, authorized. And yet it was in 1550, uh, sorry, 1534, so just one year after Cranmer was made archbishop, that con uh, Parliament, not Congress, Parliament enacts the Royal Act of Supremacy, which was the official severing of the relationship of the church in England with the Roman Catholic Church, so the church in Rome. It was at that point that the that Parliament and the king in, in, in concert uh, declared that the, the monarch of England was going to be the supreme authority of the church in England, not the, not the, the pope. So previously, the supreme authority is, of the church in England was, was the pope, and everyone else um, you know, acted as his emissary. But 1554, one year into Archbishop Cranmer's reign, uh, our time as Archbishop, uh, England broke with, um, with Rome and became, you might say, its own church, uh, the Church of England. Now, Henry died in 1547. So, so this is uh, in those 15 years from the um, uh, inauguration of the Church of England as its own independent church and the death of Henry, there was a gradual and slow of, uh, uh, growing of the Reformation principles and Reformation ideas in England. Um, by many accounts, in the early 1530s, when Henry said, okay, we're no longer Roman Catholic, nothing really changed in terms of practice or anything. The, the, the liturgy was still the same. The, uh, the practices were still the same. A lot of the theology was still the same. All that really happened was like in, in the, the line in the prayers where you pray for the supreme leader of the church, they just crossed out the pope and you know, put the king in there. And that was, it was very simple. But all I see is that there were many of those in the church at that time, including Cramner, who saw this as an opportunity, an, an opportunity to bring these Protestant principles that were emerging on the continent over into England and to begin to enact them in the life of people in, uh, in England. One of those primary motives was actually trying to get scripture into the hands of the people and a, a, more, uh, a greater spiritual or scriptural literacy across the English people. This is a, a gradual process during Henry's reign because he was still kind of uh, tampering down on any, on any real Protestant um, principles coming forth although he did allow and authorize Cramner to write uh, an English version of the communion liturgy in 1547, just prior to his death. So communion liturgy all in Latin, like it would have been for a couple hundred years during the Roman Catholic Church. But, uh, but, but Cramner and others, like we saw with Tyndale and like we might see with Martin Luther, thought that the liturgy and the scripture should be in the language of the people so that they can engage in that, and then, important foreshadowing, and then be able to internalize that very hard to like, get scripture into your heart and into your soul if you don't actually know what the words are. And if Latin is not your, you know, your native tongue, which it, it wasn't, and also if you're relatively uneducated, I mean, it was mostly only the upper class and educated that knew Latin, then scripture 
and the theological ideas contained in scripture, they're, they're not even at arm's length. They're kind of like out of reach completely. So one of Cramner's and the other reformers' main idea was to get scripture into the language of the people, and that was first occurred in 1547, um, right before Henry's death, when Cramner was able to get this, just the Eucharistic part of liturgy. So imagine everything in our, in our service with the sacrament of the, the word, the liturgy of the word, the first part, all that's still going on in Latin, um, but, but then when we got to like the actual Lord's Supper part, that's when things flipped into English. And then when Henry died and Edward VI became the king, this was in 1547, Edward VI reigned from 1547 to 1553, he was the son of, um, of one of uh, Henry's uh, Protestant wives, and he himself had been raised in more of the Protestant understanding of the faith. And at that point, 1548 and on, uh, 1547 and on, then Cranmer was able to really do a lot more liturgical and spiritual uh, renewal within the Church of England, including writing a prayer book. And if you know our prayer book, which is our prayer book here, is just, a, just an ancestor of the first prayer books that were written in 1548 and 1552. Um, these are, they are thoroughly saturated, saturated with scripture. All right, and so what's, what's going on with that um, mode, uh, that, that, uh, that idea that Cramner had? When we're thinking about the figural reading of scripture in the, the Anglican tradition, there's a few ways we, we can take that. And the essay in here on Cranmer by Ephraim Radner, uh, who he teaches uh, historical theology at the University of uh, Toronto, Wycliffe College in the University of Toronto. Um, Radner makes the case that for, for Cranmer, um, one of his emphases in thinking about the figural reading of scripture is not um, so much what we might think of as kind of this more imaginative sort of way or, or sort of like even the Christological read that we talked about previously. Rather, for, for Cramner, as I put in here, the, the figural reading of Scripture is to find ourselves in Scripture by finding Scripture in ourselves. All right, let me kind of un, unpack that. Uh, when we think of figure, we can use that term in a lot of different ways. One way of understanding figure or figural is like a shape. I mean, you talk about a little, like a little figurine, you got an action figure or a Barbie or something like that. Like, it's a figure because it's the shape of a, of a human being. Um, uh, a figural reading of scripture is to try to discern the shape of scripture so that we can then put ourselves, actually, sort of mold ourselves, fit ourselves as a kind of like figure, as a figurine, into the text of scripture. And the way we're going to do that predominantly is actually by the opposite, which is putting scripture into, uh, into ourselves, okay? Um, so what I mean this is I think that Cranmer wished that the people of England would, be so, would, so, would so internalize scripture that the, that the form, um, the shape of the behavior found in scripture would then be externalized through their lives. So you're internalizing scripture, the stories, the theological principles, the ideas, uh, the, the, the narratives, the, 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 the biographies of the people, as you're internalizing that, that will then come out and it'll outflow from your own behavior, activity, and engagement um, in the world. So the, the emphasis is less on like extracting or elucidating or founding some kind of uh, interpretation of scripture and more about applying the, the figure, the shape, or the contours of scripture uh, to oneself. Okay, um, here's a little illustration of this. So I put on your handout this uh, prayer 
that he issued before his death. So kind of catching up the history a little bit, he's arrested in 1555 when Mary, uh, we know Bloody Mary now, came to the throne after Edward VI passed away and um, put him, put Cranmer in prison and put him on trial for heresy and, and et cetera. The point, at this point in the narrative though, is he prays this prayer before his death. And I just want you to see like the, the, the numerous scriptural allusions that are found in this prayer here. So let me just read it out here. So there's this first little part, O Father of heaven, O Son of God, Redeemer of the world, O Holy Ghost, proceeding from both three persons, one God. And then we get into this litany of scriptural allusions. Have mercy upon me, most wretched, catef, and miserable sinner. You see that perhaps as an allusion to Luke 18, 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see a little bit how, how Cramner had, had uh, taken the shape of this Pharisee, of this, this tax collector, and internalized it, and then has this externalized in his own utterance, his own, his own prayer to God. Uh, we, can, we can go on onto the next page here. Uh, the prayer goes on. I who have offended both heaven and earth. Perhaps an allusion here to Luke 15, 21, prodigal son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. An instance here of Cramner internalizing the story of the prodigal son, seeing himself in that same place, and then externalizing that in his behavior, in his, in his crying out to God, his confession to God. Next line, and more grievously than any tongue can express, whither then may I go, or whither should I fly for succor? You see something like that in Psalm 139:7. Where shall I go from your presence, or where shall, I, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? It goes on, to heaven I may be ashamed to lift up my eyes, about Ezra 9, 6. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Now, a little bit more background here. You can see why he's struggling with these, like, confessions of sin here. So when he was, when he was uh, arrested and when he was under, um, in, in, in prison um, uh, after, after Mary had ascended to the throne, um, he was um, berated for, to try to confess for the authorities to get him to confess his sins, to confess his theological um, falsehoods, as they put it, on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So Cramner, during the 15, early 1550s, had written two books on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, on Christ's presence in the, in the, in the Supper, um, uh, against the Roman Catholic doctrine, the medieval Roman Catholic doctrine of, of transubstantiation. And he had this back and forth with um, uh, one of the cardinals, Cardinal Gardner, I think it was, uh, who had, you know, had an academic dispute only this academic dispute ended up in him getting arrested. And thankfully, we don't have those kinds of things too much uh, these days here. Uh, yeah, I, I'm grateful for that. I think I, I wrote a book on the Eucharist, and I thought, you know, this would probably get me arrested in the 16th century. But thankfully, now it, you know, no one even buys it, so it's not even a big deal. Um, um, but that was, the, that was the issue that his Roman Catholic accusers were trying to get him to, to flip on, on his understanding of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Okay. And at the, at the last day, or two days before his execution, he did flip. And he, and he did. He, he signed a document that said that repudiated everything that he had written to that point on the Lord's Supper, and said that he endorsed the Roman Catholic view, and that he was, uh, uh, you know, confessed his, his sins. 
So at his, at his trial, on the day of his execution, or not the trial, the day of his execution, they, they, they brought him up to the, he was in, it, it captured in areas, uh, uh, imprisoned in Oxford. So they took him up to the University Church, St. Mary of the Virgin, which is in the city center town, uh, city center. And he was supposed to give this, uh, there was a service, I mean, there was, was going to be a Eucharistic service, and there was a sermon by a Roman Catholic who was extolling the benefits of the Roman Catholic view on Christ's presence in the Eucharist. And then Cranmer was supposed to get up there and, and say, yeah, you know, I believe all that. Like, I, I, can, I, I turn from all my Protestant ways, and um, you know, I, I'm now a, trying to be a faithful member of the Roman Catholic Church. And so his execution was, was to be an act of mercy so that he would not fall into any, uh, any sins further on. Um, uh, except when he got up to the, the pulpit there to actually do this confession, he flipped back to his Protestant views. And he said, he started off, I can't remember the word exactly, but he started off and basically he just went back into, I repudiate my repudiations. I confess against my confessions. I go back, everything that I had written previously on the Protestant doctrine of Lord's Supper, he then uh, endorsed. And he didn't get to the end of it before they dragged him off of the pulpit there, took him out uh, to, the, um, to the street, and then the, the woodcut here is, a, is a, uh, from Fox's Book of Mor uh, Martyrs which has Cramner there uh, you know, in, in the middle. And you can see his right hand being extended. So this was, he, uh, he had said that in, when he was up in the pulpit there, um, that his right hand, which had signed these documents of, confess or of uh, recanting of his Protestant views, that that hand would be the first one to be burned when he was taken to the stake. And so this is, you know, by the accounts there, he put his hand out there so that would be burned first. So in this prayer, he is, he is wrestling with the fact that he had, he had repudiated his, his action, the beliefs he thought was true. He had, he had um, capitulated, succumbed to the pressure of his accusers, and he had seized, seeing himself as this miserable offender, this one who's offended heaven and earth, uh, who is uh, grievously seeking for God's mercy and God's succor. And because of the way he had internalized scripture over the course of his life, he was able to draw on these scriptural uh, figures, the, the scriptural shape, in order to give, uh, give words to and give expression to what he was feeling. So moving on here back into the, the prayer, you know, to heaven I'm ashamed to look at my eyes, again, and, then, uh, and in earth I find no refuge. There is none who takes notice of me, from Psalm 142. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. What shall I then do? Perhaps an allusion to Acts 2.37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? More instances of conviction of sin. Shall I despair? Cramner goes on. God forbid. O oh, good God, thou art merciful and refusest none, that's uh, none, none that come unto thee for succor. Perhaps an allusion there to Matthew 11.28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he concludes with, To thee, therefore, do I run. Psalm 134, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. So I see this, this, this prayer as a, and it was an example at the end of his life of this practice of, of, of figural reading of Scripture, of, of seeing himself in these various scenes, these various moments in Scripture, such that he could internalize that and adopt even the language here. Now, adopting language is one way of externalizing scripture. Adopting behavior then is, is another way. Those, those two are intimately related. So it's not just that you can like, you know, 
talk using scriptural terminology. It's that you can live using scriptural behavioral principles. You can live according to the shape of scripture. Um, now, why don't we uh, try this just a little bit here? So here's this little activity. Would you get into groups of three or four or so um, and, and read the gospel reading for today? So if you have a bulletin, uh, you, you'll see it there, but I'll just read it out or call it out. It's Matthew 22, verses 34 to 46. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 46. So in your little groups there, uh, just read that passage. It's not too many verses. Read that together. And then ask yourselves, talk with one another, how can I see myself in this story? Or what shape or what figure does this passage present such that I could incorporate it into my life? Matthew 22, 34 to 46. Read that in small groups there and then ask those questions. How can I see myself in this story? Or what shape or figure does this passage present such that I could incorporate it in my life?
about another minute or so. Hi, I'm, I'm James. Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Nice to meet you. Oh, good. Nice to meet All right, maybe we can bring our conversations back to the, the large group here. Anyone care to share the reflections on this, on this passage here? Uh, how do you see yourself reflected in this story? Or what, what shape or figure does this passage present such that you could incorporate it into your own life? Anyone care to share? Yeah. You were all chatting earlier. I tried to be first. That's fine. I'll just keep talking. Mark. Mark. Yeah. Um. I think uh, Adam and I were talking, but there is a part of us that is the legalistic side. And then there's part of us that's the challenging side. And so Adam and I were talking about essentially how we see ourselves as on either side of that equation, if we're the more legalistic or the more challenging um, side of the law. Mm. And Jesus, I, I made the comment that I thought Jesus legitimized the um, challenging side of the, mm. challenging the law. And then Adam said, but you know, Jesus always flips it, like, you know, give to Caesar unto Caesar. So mm. it's, always, he's, it's not so easy to to paint a picture of where you are or even where Jesus was on this. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. Cameron and I were talking about the, uh, the uppy-downy of mm. like the love of God and the sidey-sidey of love of neighbor. Yeah. Uh, the Y and the X-axis, which shapes a cross. And so just your idea of the shape that we're to kind of ingest and become like is really interesting how, you know, Christ embraces the neighbor and, and brings him unto himself. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, great. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, great. One more thing, Bruce. Second little story here. Yeah. Uh, find it interesting because Jesus asked them, so what do you think of the Messiah? Uh, what, what kind of person is this going to be? And, and say, well, clearly we want someone like David, someone in that line. And, and he says, yeah, but even David called this, this figure, called the Messiah, Lord. And I do have to ask myself, what sort of Messiah am I expecting? That's really something not to think mm -hmm. about that. Uh, even politically, do I want a David to be a, a David? That's just not a... Mm -hmm. uh, the... When, God's, when God sends his ultimate self-manifestation, uh, when God makes creation right, what do I imagine that will look like? Mm. Will that be a, a conquering hero, warrior? 
will it be something else? Mm. Yeah, great. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate that. Mary, could you shut those doors, please? This is we don't want to spoil the, the, the choir's singing for the next service. Great. Well, thanks for those, those reflections on that, on that passage here. Just maybe a little exercise of thinking about the ways in which we can, we can do a figural reading of Scripture that, it, that is discerning the figure, discerning the shape of a passage or the shape of a, a narrative, and then thinking about the ways in which that might apply to our own lives. Now, now usually, I think, um, finding ourselves in the scriptural shape is, um, is, is not literal, but on occasions it might actually be. At least this is the case that Radner makes here with respect to Cramner's putting his hand into the fire first. I mean, Jesus says, if your hand offendeth, you know, cut it off. And it wasn't quite a little cutting off. And now, I would take that as a, yeah, hold on a second, you know, you, you should see that as metaphorically. We should see that that's denying ourselves. That's sort of the shape there. But I wonder if Cranmer's sort of like martyrdom actually invites us to think about there are perhaps instances where we are literally in a situation where we should be applying this scriptural principle in a, a literal sense. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, my preaching professor was talking about that passage in 1 Corinthians about not eating food sacrificed to idols, you know, and he was saying, well, look, you know, of course, in contemporary America, like, you know, we've got to take that as a, as a figure, as a shape, you know, in terms of uh, deducing some kind of a principle from that and then applying it to our context. And then he told a story about how he was in somewhere in Southeast Asia and he was talking to these new Christians and they were like, hey, what do we do? We've got this situation where we have these like food that's like sacrificed to these idols here. And he's like, I've got a passage for you. Like, you know, let me tell you, here's actually a literal way to apply this passage. But I say, I don't think those metaphoric or literal ways are actually in tension with one another. They're actually part of this overall figural understanding of discerning what's the shape, and then in wisdom, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I think, what, how do we apply that shape, how do we apply that, that figure, how do we apply the principles that are in play in a particular passage into our own um, situation? Um, and one thing I, I think I want to caution uh, against is the practice of seeing oneself in Scripture can have its vices and, and its, its excesses. Uh, I think for for instance, and this actually was going on at times in, in the English Reformation, one should be cautious about seeing any nation, for instance, as the literal inheritors of Old Testament Israel. This, this is what the English often thought, that England was the new Israel, that King Edward VI was the new King Josiah, the one who was chosen by God to lead the people into a time of flourishing. Um, there's a, a nice sort of like grand application you could make to that, but seeing this too literally as, as, as a nation or an individual as the inheritors of some specific promises in scripture, I think is, um, is actually dangerous. So to be cautious about having an overinflated view of oneself, um, and I think we can uh, try to push against this by not having a myopic or narrow view of what scriptures apply to, our, apply to us, but actually think about the entirety of scripture applies to us. So if you have too overinflated a view of your own importance, you might look at those passages which says things like, you know, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. Or look at those passages where people are not doing the things that God wanted them to do. Look at David's triumphs, and if you have some kind of a grand idea that maybe you or your nation should be inheriting David, and you look at David's sin and his adultery and his murder, and those are the kinds of things that he needs to cry out for forgiveness to. We just look at the entirety of the shape of Scripture as applying to our lives. And I think one way that Cramner wished to push against this tendency was to commend the, um, the reading and the internalizing 
of the entirety of scripture. And that's where we get to the daily office and the Sunday lectionary. One of the reforms that Cramner enacted there in the early 1550s, or late 1540s, early 1550s, was to expand the lectionary that was read on Sunday morning. So you read more of scripture on Sunday morning, and to also institute this practice of, of the daily office for, for all the people, not just for you know, the clergy, not just for monks in the, in the monasteries, but that all the people should be reading scripture on a daily basis. And in fact, his lectionary had it such he read the entirety of scripture over the course of one year. And if you're doing that, if, if, if you're practicing that, if you're, if you're internalizing the totality of scripture into your lives, this can push against too much of a, 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 a narrow view of seeing yourself as only in one part, maybe like the best parts of scripture. But rather, scripture gives us a, a, a full picture of the human um, experience there. Um, and, and sometimes that pushes against our own kind of like desires. I remember one time, this was, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago or so, and, um, and I was doing the daily office regularly, and I was praying, and I got up one morning, I remember it was early morning, I was there in New England, and uh, you know, I pulled up my prayer book, and I flipped to the lectionary part there, right, and I tried to find the Old Testament lesson, it said Job 1, and I was like, oh, not Job, like, come on, I don't want to read Job right now, it was, it's not Lent, it's not like, you know, it's, it was like the middle of the summer, it's like, ah, I don't want to, Job is heavy, and it's like, ugh. But I did it, you know, because that was what the lectionary was telling me that I ought to do, was trying to give me this, like, well-rounded diet of the entirety of Scripture. I wasn't just picking the books that I wanted to read. I would just be reading John and Hebrews probably, like, all the time if I was just picking for myself. But the lectionary had me reading Job, because there were lessons in Job that are important for me, understanding what the figure is, what the, what the shape is of dependence on God, or all things coming from God, or all the various shapes that, that Job commends to an individual. Um, and so reading the entirety of scripture on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on our Sunday lectionaries, helps to push against the excesses of only focusing myopically on, on a few figures, but actually looking at the totality of scripture. This colic for the second Sunday of Advent, which I've put on the handout there, uh, is, is a Cranmerian colic. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful way of thinking about how we can internalize scripture. Uh, this colic says, Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and I love this phrase, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I think that digesting language there is really rich. I mean, just think about biological digestion. You, you, you eat some food, it goes down your esophagus into your stomach, and then your stomach starts ripping it apart so that it can break it down into these pieces that your blood can then absorb, which then gets put into your muscles and other parts of your body so that you can actually do various things. Think about that with the ideas of scripture. We, we, we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, putting them into our souls, breaking them into such a way that they can be assimilated into our lives, into our behaviors, into the way we engage in the world and with one another, such that then what comes out is, is, is grounded scriptural principles, principles grounded in scripture, grounded in God's revelation. Just like, I don't know, you, you, you eat a bunch of you know, sugar or whatnot, it's going to come out in like you know, eccentric activity, you know? You eat a bunch of, digest a bunch of God's words, and what's going to come out is behavior as God has, um, has intended. 
Now, uh, flipping things over here, one way I wanted to kind of see about applying this figuring things is in, is in the Eucharist. All right, so uh, for our remaining time here, I want to think about a, what I call a Cranmerian model of the Eucharist. As I mentioned, that was the most controversial issue, and it was the topic that Cranmer wrote the most on. So we have most of his, of, of all the doctrines, this is the one we have the most of his thought on. Um, and um, uh, just a little warning here, when he comes to his specific views of like Christ's presence in the Eucharist, um, I disagree with him. I've got my own thoughts on that. But I think there are lots of good principles that one can apply around that, beyond that issue as well, that can, uh, I think, to manifest a little bit this idea of taking the figure or the shape of something in Scripture and then applying it to our own lives. So let me just read a couple of these quotations from Cranmer and then think with you about how we might deduce or extract a figure here that can then impact our own lives. So uh, this, these couple little bullet points here was from uh, Cranmer's personal notebooks, like in the early 1540s when he was kind of like wrestling with whether or not he should be like Roman Catholic view of Christ's presence or Lutheran view of Christ in the, in the supper or uh, more reformed view. And he says these things here, blood is a figure of the life. Uh, so is the bread a sign of the body. But this cup is my blood, must needs be a figurate, must be a, a figure. Goes on, what is it that he calleth bread and wine? First it is called bread, and after the consecration, uh, signifies the body of Christ. And the bread is the figure, for the bread is the sacrament. Hocus uh, corpus meum, it es figura corporis, this is my body, it is a figure of the body, thus saith the old fathers, he says. And then he says, for, when Christ, uh, for Christ, when he bids us eat his body, it is figurative. So for, for Cranmer, communion is an, is an action. It's a performance, if you will, um, by which we conceptually internalize um, a, a literal reality. At least this is my contention here. Um, in a sense, what, what I'd like to say is that Jesus was expressing the heart of scriptural truths in the Lord's Supper by means of his own like figural reading of Passover and his own his own sacrifice, so that when when we participate in this action, we too are enacting and remembering and inflaming our faith to embrace this scriptural truth. Now, what what is that truth? The, the truth, at least I contend, is that we are connected to Christ. Uh, we're nourished so to speak, energized, animated, empowered, um, sustained by him. And that's where I kind of have these two things here. So this is a quotation from Cramner. There be two things in the sacrament, to eat the sacrament and to eat the body of Christ. The eating of the body is to dwell in Christ, and this may be though a man never taste the sacrament. All men eat not the body of the sacrament. Because I see it, Cramner argues there's like these two things here. There's there's A, the, the physical reality of a human being eating a piece of bread and drinking some wine, but there's something else. There is a, a figure, a shape, which is the spiritual reality of the soul or the mind or the heart of the faithful being directly connected to the body and blood of Christ, not on a physical plane and not even on a metaphysical plane, but on a spiritual plane by means of, by means of faith. Um, and, and so, I, and I've got a few other quotations here. Um, Kramer uses this like formula a lot in his writing on the Eucharist, this as so, which I think uh, formula, which gets at, I think, this sort of like figural reading here. So here's a couple of illustrations or examples. 
Um, as outwardly we eat the bread and drink the wine with our mouths, so inwardly by faith we spiritually eat the very flesh and drink the very blood of Christ. What's being figured? What's the shape here? Eating the flesh and blood of Christ, spiritually being dependent upon Christ. What's the way in which we enact this, externalize this? By eating the bread and drinking the wine. Uh, similar analogy in the next one there. As every man is carnally fed and nourished by, in his body by meat and drink, even so is every good Christian man spiritually fed and nourished in his soul by the flesh and blood of our Savior Christ. What's the figure or the shape? Being nourished, being, being spiritually fed by um, the flesh and blood of Christ by your soul. Uh, what's the shape of that? Well, it's it, in, in the supper. It's in the Lord's uh, supper. It's in eating the bread and the wine. Next one. How often do I teach and repeat again and again that as corporally with our mouths we eat and drink the sacramental bread and wine, so spiritually with our hearts, by faith, do we eat Christ's very flesh and drink his very blood, and do both feed and live spiritually by him, although corporally he is absent from us, us and sitteth in heaven at his Father's right hand. So here's my comment here. There's this physical reality. Uh, Corporally, we eat with our mouths and drink uh, with our mouths the sacramental bread and wine. But this parallels, this, this, this enacts, this externalizes an internal shape or figure of a spiritual reality. So spiritually, with our hearts, by faith, do we eat Christ's very flesh and drink his very blood. Another one here, getting Cramner in, in, in front of you. We lift up our hearts unto heaven. There's an allusion to the Sursum Corda in our, in our liturgy. Uh, we lift up our hearts unto heaven, and with our faith, we see Christ crucified with our spiritual eyes and eat his flesh, thrust through with a spear, and drink his blood springing out of his side with our spiritual mouths of our faith. And that's kind of gross, actually, in my mind, you know? But, it, but see the shape, see the figure. If you're putting yourself into the scene of, of on Golgotha, and you're seeing Christ's side being pierced with the, with, the, with the spear, and blood and water flowing out of that, he's saying that's a shape, that's a figure for our own dependence on God, our, our nourishment, our being energized and animated by the sacrifice of Christ is such that we are there at Christ's very side, drinking from the blood springing out of, out of his side there. The, the shape, the, the figure, is what's going on in Scripture, but the, the reality then, the externalizing that of our own lives, is our, is our receiving that by faith and our, our responding in our behavior uh, according, according to that. Um, I'll just read this last one here, because it's got some more uh, deep uh, language here. But you can kind of see the, the level, the depth at which he is willing to like, entertain this imaginative immersion into Scripture. To, to embrace this figure, to internalize the figure of our dependence on Christ, such that it is externalized in our lives. Faithful Christian people, such as be Christ's true disciples, continually, from time to time, record in their minds the beneficial death of our Savior Christ, chawing it by faith in the cut of their spirit and digesting it in their hearts, feeding and comforting themselves with that heavenly meat, although they daily receive not the sacrament thereof, and so they eat Christ's body spiritually, although not the sacrament thereof. That is, you can eat the sacrament, Cramner is saying, without actually eating the sacrament. Two lines of meaning there, right? So you can, you can understand by faith our dependence on God, 
Christ's provision for us are being sustained by him, even if you don't actually eat the bread and the wine, as you are continually remembering it in your own mind, chawing on it by faith in the cut of your spirit. Um, but when such men, for their more comfort and confirmation of eternal life, given unto them by Christ's death, come unto the Lord's holy table, then as before they fed spiritually upon Christ, so now they feed corporally also upon the sacramental bread by which sacramental feeding in Christ promises, their former spiritual feeding is increased, and they grow and wax continually more strong in Christ until at the last they shall come to the full measure and perfection of Christ. So I think for, for Cranmer, the Eucharist is the shape of the whole Christian life, which is being connected to Christ and his work. This is a, a figural reading of Scripture, a figural reading of this central Christian uh, central moment in the gospel narratives of Christ's death and his resurrection and all his work that comes and flows from that. Christ has given us a figure that we then internalize by participation in the Lord's Supper and then externalize in our behavior, behavior that is, that is uh, animated by being connected to Christ um, and his work. 10.31, we've got a little bit of time for some questions. We'll go to 10.35, I can do that, right? Any questions or thoughts? Yeah, Ruth. Mm. Should we should we tint some of that red? Is that what you're suggesting? No, probably not. We'll leave that there. But it's a similar kind of mo it's a similar thing, right? So you think about the water flowing, you know, from the, the baptismal waters, the water of life, you know, that kind of. This is a similar sort of like figure, I, I think I might say, of us needing God, depending on God, having our lives animated and flowing from God. And we can actually enact that or figure that in different ways. Yeah, right, exactly. He also water flowed from his side. Yeah. So, yeah. Anybody else? All right, good. Well, thank you very much. Good to chat with you all about Thomas Cranmer. Okay, well, next week um, we are going to have a treat because we're moving into the 17th century and we're going to look how scripture shaped the poetry of John Donne. Bob Roberts is going to be presenting on that, so I think that will really be wonderful.